and it, it's um, supposed to be uh, the final statement in uh, how it is that we bring the practice into the world. Most of us uh, who have been doing this for a little bit of time have, I think, realized the difficulty in maintaining the kind of focus and interest once we get out of retreat that we have on it. And even if we do a three-month retreat or or other, uh, after a while, the energy to participate in this process seems to wane for most people to the point where you scratch your head uh, and wonder what all that was about. And that what you have to do is crank it all up again and go back into another retreat to find out what there was worth, what was happening then. Now it's interesting, uh, living in a city and uh, sort of uh, like I did here in Houston for a number of years, but also now I'm in Seattle and I've been there five years and a group of people meet regularly to try to figure this out to try to put it all together, to try to make their life, lives workable. And I would say with varying degree of success, like everybody else, we sort of get it together a little bit and then it seems again to dissipate between the Monday night groups, still on Monday by the way. <laughs> and we've done things like what we've called a, a sandwich retreat where uh, we'll sit on the weekends and then meet during the week at uh, 7 o'clock from 7 to 9 to try to... Um, and we define that week as being on retreat. So we'll go ahead and go to work and do everything we normally do, supper and talk and speak with our children, and etc. But then we meet from 7 to 9 every night to look at different ways to make that retreat workable. And it's the it's, it's a remarkable, just in the fact of defining yourself on retreat, how much care and attention you give your life that we don't, when we don't define it as being such. So maybe part of the solution, it's only part, is in our definition of what life is about. But certainly, uh, this kind of life that means the life in which we sit and walk all day long, isn't available uh, to very many people for very long periods of time. And it's not even the right way for most of us to spend the time we do have off. It just it doesn't fit comfortably in the other responsibilities that we hold. So we have to figure out, we have to cut through all this stuff, get to the basics, back to the fundamental sense of what it means to be alive, to be awake in the world. And we have to come to that. And then we have to figure out what that is and, and find our way through it. Unfortunately, most of us... Uh, along the way uh, 
have teachers who uh, point to the form of the meditation as being what the meditation is all about. And therefore, when we don't think we're sitting or walking, then we don't think we're doing it. And we, because we have a tendency in the West to self, uh, self uh, depreciation, self judgment, uh, and we don't think then we're doing our, we're not fulfilling our task. We're not living up to what we're supposed to do in terms of our spiritual lives. And uh, and then we essentially give up even thinking about it in many ways. We just go about our life and until something strikes us, usually a tragedy, and we need a handle for the tragedy to steady ourselves, and then we find ourselves back into some kind of spiritual practice again. Well, the talk tonight is finding our breath in life. Now, uh, it's really an elaboration of a quote that I keep on my desk at home. And I'd like to, it was given to me by a friend, and I'd like to quote this to you. That's a beautiful quote. And then I'd like to elaborate on what that means in terms of finding our breath in life. And the quote is this. Don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and then go out and do that because what the world needs is people who have come alive. So I'd I'd like to talk about that. Now, the reason I call this talk uh, Finding Our Breath in Life is because when we are meditating formally in this room, the breath is sort of the anchor, the steadying point. It's the focus for our, uh, our tension. And as other things arise, we take it out and go to those other qualities of mind, but then the anchor of our breath is a stimulation is a sensation that's always present and always something that we can return to. But what happens when we're practicing at home, sitting at home, and we get up? Where's the breath in our life? Where's the focus? Many of us find ourselves going to the refrigerator, getting something to eat right after we meditate. If you're aware because what the ego tries to do is re-engage itself. It's sitting and it's not doesn't have a real firm footing in meditation. So it gets up and tries to reassert itself by uh, by food or by some kind of pleasant doing something pleasant. But the, there's a real Good question. What does it mean to get lost? What what happens? Where does that focus go? Why does our life all of a sudden come back in and um, in very uh, ominous tones and uh, sort of take us away? I mean, we sit there, some degree of understanding, some degree of peace, tranquility, all the things that uh, we crave as individuals. And uh, then it just seems to dissipate. 
and we think, oh, when I sit, I'm spiritual, and when I eat, I'm not. And when I do this, so we have our lives sort of lined up on a, this side is spiritual and this side is worldly or something. But I would suggest to you tonight, and the theme of this talk, is that the practice is about owning our aliveness. And our aliveness is our birthright. It's about owning that which makes us come alive. Finding that which makes us come alive. When I was a psychology undergraduate student, uh, I was uh, in a school that was... uh, um, that taught uh, experimental psychology. It was its big base, and it taught about um, stimulus and response. And it said, and I had a teacher who stood up in front and said, stimulus and response is essentially all that you are. So you might as well put everything else aside. There's no soul, no God, no nothing. You're just a mechanical being, stimulus and response. And although I could see... Um, in myself, a lot of cause and effect, stimulus and response, there still seemed to be something that it didn't quite, uh, it wasn't a quite complete statement because I felt alive in another way, even though I was being conditioned and I realized that and, and I even realized that to greater extent once I got involved in my own spiritual pursuit, still there's something about being alive that is not just mechanical there's certainly there's a lot of mechanics in it even thinking has a mechanical component but it never felt completely right to me and it's because of our aliveness pre-existed conditioning you can't cause something that's not alive to be conditioned aliveness is more fundamental than the conditioning itself and in fact our aliveness is more fundamental than experience to experience something you have to be already alive to experience right and it is more fundamental than birth or death So to come into what makes us alive is to come into waking up to something that is beyond and more fundamental than our conditioning, than our experience, than our pain, than our suffering, than anything that's built on top of that aliveness. And the task is for us to find out what that aliveness is and untether it from all the things that distract us from it. Because, in fact, there's an awful lot that does in the course of our two days here together. Many of us have been spent much of the time distracted in thought, in memory, in something. But undistracted aliveness, aliveness that is fundamental prior to the experience of things, 
is there waiting for us when our mind has not been connected with its identification and its holding. So what the practice really needs to grow into, where we need to grow into besides um, our meditation. See, what all meditation does, all that you're doing here, is that you're trying to work your mind so that you understand how it is that you get distracted and to let go, and to understand it, to let go of the distraction so that you come back to that alive. That's the meditation process. But if we can find something inherent in life itself that allows us to wake up and to be alive in and of that, with that thing, then we will, in fact, be meditating. Regardless of whether we do the form of sitting or not. Um, I once read an article about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And she um, said she never meditated, never sat, never wanted to, felt like it was a, just kind of dry for her, never had the propensity to want to sit on the ground or a chair or anything. But when she's with the dying, she is totally focused on what that person is saying. With that person intimately, learning constantly not only what that person is saying, but her own reactions to what that person is saying, and is as focused as any of us would be on our breath after a three-month course. And it was pointed out to her that, in fact, that was meditation that she was doing, that, but that it was through her interest with the dying that that meditation had access, not through sitting on the floor. You see, we have to be very careful that we don't buy other people's problems. For some meditation teachers, you know, who have done laborious amounts of retreats, year in and year out, in this kind of finite mindfulness training, they feel that the road through to everyone's freedom is through that kind of form. But the Buddha didn't talk about meditation in that way. He talked about it as a raft, the analogy of the raft. You get on the raft, you float across the sea, and then you get off the raft. And I get the feeling sometimes that people get on the raft, float across the sea, put the raft on their head, and carry it into the land. But once you're on firm ground, once you know what spirituality is, you no longer need that. But you do need your aliveness. So we have to find out what makes us come alive. And the interesting thing about our aliveness, you see, is that caring flows through our aliveness. What we're interested in, we focus on. What we're focused on, we care about. What we care about, our heart opens to, and there is affection for. 
that when Elizabeth Kubaroff sits down with a dying patient, it's not through some feigned, pretended interest. She deeply cares about these people. And it shows in the intimacy of that contact. And that wakes her up. So she may define her spiritual path as not being meditative, but I dare say it's full of meditation if we define it in the broadest way as contacting our aliveness. So contacting our aliveness is really about contacting our caring, our affection. How can it be otherwise? We are not isolated beings in this. And what the yearning that many of us feel in our hearts is for is the union of the escape from this sense of isolation to the union of commonality, to the union of inclusion. And our aliveness is like the arrow of a compass. It points us right towards that direction, north. Now, most of us do need some kind of form to connect with our aliveness. And because our lives are too full with uh, voices within us, the the uh, the voice of uh, of responsibility, the voice of duty, the voice of um, of, of childhood within us, um, and all the different expressions of our unworthiness, and all the different things that come up. Uh, it's very difficult to see any kind of aliveness when we're faced with that kind of opaque screen in front of our faces. It's as if we're facing mirrors everywhere we look that just point back to some kind of a blemish on our skin, on ourselves. And so we just, we feel like we're almost hunkering down. It feels almost sometimes like we're so in there that we're way back in there. I was once with a dying patient uh, at the hospice here in Houston, actually. It was one of the first people I ever served. And she, um, she had lost her um, husband to lymphoma when she was being um, diagnosed with her own terminal cancer. Uh, <clears throat> and when I uh, met her, I, I, her consciousness, she was way back in her consciousness. She had had so much trauma in her life, not only the loss of her husband and her own diagnosis, but a series of things. And you could see her, that she, she just retreated back because the mirrors were reflecting such powerful images at her that she just, she, she just went back. She just went out right into the far reaches of her consciousness. And I would talk to her from time to time and I couldn't, there's no way that I couldn't connect with her because she was too far back in there. And finally, out of desperation more than anything else, I said, uh, Jane, what is it that keeps you going from day to day? What is it that keeps you living? And she said two things. She said, uh, my daughter and 
uh, my religion. And I said, Jane, although no one would have ever, ever uh, forced you through this kind of suffering, what you've just told me is something that is that few people, even on their deathbed, really understand. And you've told me what life is about, what, what the meaning of life is. You have said that is it about love, love for your daughter, and about your spiritual growth in terms of your religious practices. And I said, most people die and never understand that. And she started to re-enter her aliveness again through the love of her daughter and through some sense in herself. And God knows where that sense comes from. It's a mystery, but thank God that it's there within all of us. That there is something in that aliveness that cannot be completely shut out no matter how, how reflective those mirrors are. There is something there that cannot be completely squashed. Believe me, it is difficult to find sometimes. And it is difficult to fan the flame of that so that it will rise up over the objections of the mirrors that surround it. But it's there, and it's there in every single person, not just in this room, but universally. I don't know how many of you saw the movie uh, Dead Man Walking, but... It was about that, really. See, some people would just as soon kill the whole person off. Just get rid of that person. And, but, but it doesn't allow for the potential of that aliveness to come back into, into a flaming... See? So we have to be careful what we do. And the whole issue around assisted suicide is really an issue that we, we don't know what we're doing. We think as a, as a community, if I can just talk a little bit here about current issues in relationship to this subject, we think, yes, everybody should have the freedom, go when they want to go, do what they want to, but most people act from their fear, not from the fact. They are afraid of what will happen, not what is happening, and they kill themselves based on that fear, not upon the upon the reality of the moment. And in doing so, they rob themselves of any kind of growth, any kind of aliveness coming out of that difficulty. And we may be, because the Supreme Court has just said it would hear the case, we may be, as a society, about to extinguish for many, many hundreds, perhaps thousands of people, that light. We need to know what we're doing. So some of us and most of us need some kind of form so that we can get out of all this hideousness that's around us. Uh, hideousness in the sense of our, our the mirrors that are reflecting back in on us. As a matter of fact, let me use that analogy of a mirror. I'm just kind of going off tonight, so you're just going to have to put up with me here. Um, for some of you who do have a lot of that reflection coming back at you, from early childhood, one of the things that I would suggest is to go stand in front of the mirror. Let the mirror reflect what, it, what the world sees. And notice, 
that what it's reflecting back is not what's inside reflecting out. It's not filled with self-hate. It's not filled with comparison and judgment. And if you just stand there for five minutes of the, of the, of the day and look at what reality sees compared to what you see in reality, we can then begin to found ourselves, to steady ourselves in the image, in the reflection, in the real of what we are rather than what we think everybody sees and how hideous we are and all the other stuff that we color our picture with. It's a good practice worth doing. You see, in the world, I mean, uh, the quote that says, you don't need to go out and do what the world, what you think the world needs. Because when we do that, when we just go out and, and work, then we are working more often from one of those reflections than from any kind of clarity. We project onto the world what we think the world needs from us and then go out and often screw it up more. And if I can tell you another hospice story around this point, no sacred cows in here. Never are when we do retreats together. I owe you that. Uh, another hospital story where um, a, a man was uh, not taking his medications and he was in pain. So the nurse tried to do everything and the man just refused to do it. So the nurse snuck some uh, sublingual morphines, which are these little teeny tablets, into his food because she wanted him to be out of pain. The man discovered what was happening and became furious with us and fired us as a hospice, which he should have done. He was absolutely right in firing us from the hospital. And the nurse came back and uh, we discussed it about, about that not being hospice care. That was her need. The way she wanted to die was out of pain, so she tried to arrange her death with this man instead of sitting down with him and listening why he wouldn't take his medication. It turns out that he didn't want to take his medications because he had been uh, you know, a very um, uh, choosing my words here a little bit. He had, he had been a, a religious fundamentalist and uh, didn't believed in stoicism, believed that he should not in any way give in to the pain. Now that's not how I would want to die, probably not how you would want to die, but this man whole character and perspective of life was that and it wasn't going to be shaken by some nurse who wants to give him pills. Now some other hospice people refuse to take medications because they want to do penance for their sins of a lifetime. And we will do everything to show them that there's some dysfunctionality in that thinking but we won't force the medications on them. Or some people won't take their medications because the very feeling of pain itself tells them they're still alive in the process of dying. And they want to know that. They don't want to die before their time. See, there are a lot of reasons. And yet, our need to help can whitewash those reasons with our own projection and serving our own needs. And it's, it's really the art of listening that we're talking about when we're talking about listening to ourselves and listening to our aliveness. So we can really um, color the world very selfishly 
with our desires to help. Now that doesn't mean that a lot of good doesn't come out of people helping. If you see somebody struggling on the street, you don't say, oh, I can't, can't help you. You're not where my aliveness is. <laughs> but you want, but you, you want to be very clear in yourself about what it is and why it is that the helping is there and what we're trying to do in relationship to that helping. You know, many of us lived through the 60s where uh, burning armories in the name of peace, uh, and now they are, uh, some of the anti-abortionists are, you know, killing the doctors. There's a screw loose there. It's not very helpful to the greater cause and the greater good. We take human life. Anyway, to get back, refocus again to the talk. So um, it's not so important to uh, be concerned as much with what the world, we think the world needs as where it is, what in the world makes us come alive when we do it, when we access it. Uh, Now, um, again, in terms of meditation, unless there's the spirit of what we're doing, meditation practice is flat and dead. You might as well not even do it, to be honest. You're wasting your time. I can't be any more blunt than that. You're reconditioning the same qualities that you've come out of. And unless there is some aliveness in your meditation, unless you're waking up to it, unless you're vital in it, unless there's some real clarity and wanting to see and wanting to understand and wanting to learn, that's not going to be a constant but it should be the spirit in which we approach the meditation. There's going to be drab days, drowsy days, restless days, days when you can't focus, all of that. But there should still be a, behind there a flame of some uh, passion to understand. To understand. That's light last night on the thermostat. And I have seen, and as I've mentioned many times, the mechanics of mindfulness, the mechanics of, you know, without the spirit. And the beauty, and I know some of you have studied with Thich Nhat Hanh, I think the beauty of his own sense is that he has put the spirit right in, infused it into the mindfulness, so that he breathes, he breathes out, and I don't know his techniques, but he's breathing out, caring, and breathing, I mean, he's, He's doing, you know, the spirit and the process is simultaneous. Now, I don't particularly care for that kind of imagery. It doesn't fit well with my own style. But the, what he's doing is breeding the spirit, breeding the sense of what we're, of the end in the process, you might say. You know, to, to include everything in every step you do is the end during the process. And that's the, it's the spirit of that. And... The spirit of that, from my point of view, is the spirit of caring, of bringing that sense of caring. We have lived our lives in the West very uncaringly. You, most of you in this room, are the least things you care about on this planet. And you expect to heal in some spiritual sense without bringing caring into that? Caring is the basis of our aliveness. 
Caring is the basis of growth. How can you grow and understand something if you don't care about it? If you dismiss it, if you put it down, if you judge it, if you belittle it. It has to be the step one. So I hope, and those of you who have done retreats with me in the past and in the future, it will be my theme in the future because I see it popping up in everybody's temperament around here. Not everybody's, but many people's temperament. That sense of self-abuse. And so we will start every retreat with that sense of caring because it is a basis for our aliveness to grow. It is the basis. This practice, we grow into the heart. Now, meditation is not the only expression of what brings us and makes us alive. Meditation, for some people, is, I can't wait to meditate. Perhaps not very many. (laughs) But there are a few. But, for me, my aliveness, what has been my focus, what has brought me alive, has changed over the years. And uh, it started a number of years... I just love to sit and walk, sit and walk, sit and walk, do all that stuff, and did it for a long period of time. Then I was in the forests of Thailand, and I read the book Who Dies, Stephen Levine's book. And I went, oh, wow, this is what I need. This, there's something dry. There's something that hasn't been complete uh, in my lifestyle as a monk. And what I intimated was that it was with connection with people and that I needed some form to connect with people in aliveness. And death was that form for me. I knew when I read that book that I wanted to work with a dying. That was probably in 1980, three or four years before I actually got involved with the process, with with working. But I could see death as being just as important as sitting. It kept my focus, it kept my interest, it kept me uh, questioning, you know, what is death to me and what am I doing and all this sort of thing in relationship to my own death, but also it allowed me to connect with people and to touch my aliveness. The flame was hot and has been hot, and I dare say that the years since I left the monkhood have been every every bit as rich perhaps richer in understanding than the years when I was sitting on my uh, zafu hour after hour. It has nothing at all to do with how we contort the body. It has everything to do with whether we're alive or not. Uh, story I tell often and I again I apologize uh, it be a, a little longer talk tonight if you don't mind um, a story I tell a lot and um, one that uh, uh, so bear with me you've heard it before but it's, uh, 
And that is, a, uh, we had an inpatient unit at the hospice here in Houston that was in a nursing home. It was a 15-bed inpatient unit. And um, we had a, on our service a 33-year-old woman who was dying of breast cancer, and she requested uh, to leave her family and to go into the inpatient unit when she started to get close to dying. And so we honored that uh, and took her into the inpatient unit. And as soon as we got her in bed, she started to actively die. And we were around her bed uh, as she was uh, telling us what it was like to die. Now, most people die uh, either in coma or unable to speak. But this woman was able to speak, and she wasn't in coma, and she was telling us what the dying process was like. The only time in 15, 13 years of hospice care I've ever had that happen. And she said, now here we have a bunch of hospice people who come to the profession just for this. <laughs> I mean, talk about the secrets of the world being revealed. So she says, uh, I'm not, uh, I don't feel anything on my body, meaning body senses. I'm not, uh, see, I don't see anything anymore. And then she said, I can't hear anymore. And then she said, my God, I'm no longer in my body. And then she tried to say something and died. And I looked up around the hospice people who were there, and we were absolutely on the edge of the mystery, as if the next words were to reveal the truth of the whole universe to us. And it was a room that was so full of aliveness, so acutely attuned and deeply caring, that it was almost overwhelming to be a part of. And when I left that room, I thought, my God, you know, beyond the message of what she was giving us was the spirit in that room of what life could be about if we would just stay attuned to our aliveness. So I ask you, where is your aliveness? It doesn't have to be death and dying. That's kind of a drama. What is it that got you involved in doing the thing that you're doing that you used to love and somehow over the years it just has become habituated, habitual? Can we go back to that same spirit somehow? Can we reinvigorate, refine, retune ourselves to the original purpose that got us involved in the first place? Perhaps if you were a nurse, you really wanted to connect with people in pain. You wanted to sit there. Maybe that was the... And then nursing got out of hand. And it's way out of hand now. There's a lot of technology. Often the nurses don't even see the patients. Or they just... It's the nurse's aides that see the patients. And the nurses do the charting. You see? So the question is, can we get back there? Can we get back? Can we find our footing again? Perhaps it was being a mother with little children. And then all the dynamics of being a mother got involved or got, you know, and all the stuff with your kids. And then. Can we reinvigorate? Can we reinstill that sense of aliveness back into that? I had a friend who was a waitress. And she was putting herself through school as a waitress. And 
she hated being a waitress. So I said, well, what would you like to do? She says, well, I'm going to go, I'm going through social work to serve people. I said, why don't you serve the food? And so she started to serve food. See, it's a very different, isn't it? Anything else I can do for you? <laughs> and meaning it, you see? There she was back alive, and she, with that change in attitude, she said that it changed around her whole way and perspective of being a, a waitress. Discovering what makes us come alive. There is a wonderful video that you're all, all welcome to borrow. I have one copy, but it's so, and I'll be happy to send it to you because it's a wonderful video. It's a man named Maury Schwartz. He was dying of ALS, and Nightline did three interviews, one when he was very healthy, one when he was in the middle of the process, one when he was on his deathbed. And Ted Koppel, who can be very stone cold, just kind of melts. He gets, he starts out very stone cold, and then he gets warmer, and then at the, he's like. <laughs> and Maury Schwartz was a was a Brandeis professor, and actually uh, was involved in meditation with a good friend of mine, who was his meditation teacher out of CIMC, the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. And Maury, as he was going through this thing was becoming more and more alive. As a matter of fact, he was almost becoming like a guru to people. People would gather around him because he was so alive in his illness and in his death. And the, uh, the Ted Koppel interviews really show this very, very nicely. So Maury at one point says, um, so Ted says, well, Maury, uh, how can you be dying and, uh, and so alive? He says, he says, Ted, I am in the middle of my life. This is the most alive I've ever been. Do we have to w wait until we die to connect them that way? When we follow what it is that makes us align, we, alive, we align with our heart. We align with our caring. We align with our interest. The thing flows like that. And it connects us to the mystery. Because the aliveness isn't just about the thing, but it's about discovery. It's about exploration. It's about the movement of our interest through, like death. It just keeps taking you deeper into itself. But anything can do that. Teaching, administrative work. You know, I was talking um, to a friend here and who um, works with young children. And I mean, there, you can be completely free with young children. You can blow bubbles. And you don't have to... See, when you're with adults, it's all covered up. That kind of innocence and childlike play gets all covered up. All the mirrors start reflecting back and it gets to... You see, but then you can be alive. So you do what you... Right there. 
So, what I hope for you all is that you understand that this form that we're doing here may fit, may not. doesn't matter. What we're trying to do is to touch something, to get ourselves on the right direction, in the right way, in the right alignment, to something that allows our heart to genuinely care and to be aligned and to be intimate and to connect with what it is that makes us alive. And then, as the... Don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and go out and do that because what the world needs is people who have come alive. So I'd like to end tonight with a poem by Mary Oliver. And she writes, You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees and the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clear blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. Could we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.